You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. We're taking time to record new episodes this week, including one on the special counsel report that we'll be putting out soon. So this week's episode is going to feature an excerpt from our annual conference, November 2018, from the panel Social Media 2020, moderated by Professor Laura Donahue, a professor of law and the director of the Center on National Security and the Law and the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown University Law Center. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security is also hosting an event on May 1st, Law Day, called Supply Chain Security is National Security. It's going to be a lunch downtown in Washington, D.C., and will feature a panel of supply chain experts including Joyce Corral, the Assistant Director of the Supply Chain and Cyber Directorate at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, Stephen Preston, a partner at Wilmer Hale and the Chair of their Defense, National Security, and Government Contracts Practice, and Harvey Rishikoff, the Chair of the ABA Standing Committee's Advisory Committee. You can register for this event at our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, and find out more information about the Standing Committee and the podcasts. Now, on to this week's episode. Professor Donahue is going to start off by introducing the panelists. The ubiquity of social media in modern society carries with it a host of national security concerns. Some of these require new approaches, new legal frameworks, new policies, One of the most critical issues right now centers on the manipulation and disinformation campaigns, most notably the ones that are led by the Kremlin, which interfere in Western democratic institutions. They create panic through uh, fake news stories, which are then amplified by bots and trolls and fed into a disinformation feedback loop. Paired with the strategic release of stolen documents, such campaigns can shape public reaction, alter election outcomes, and generate a lack of faith in democratic institutions. Other national security concerns relate to terrorist recruitment on social media platforms. Uh, Today, it's my privilege to moderate a panel on these risks, the challenges, and mindful of the constitutional issues attached to look at whether new approaches, new legal frameworks, and new policies are required. Uh, Joining us today is Ms. Nancy Fortenberry, who has her JD from American University, Washington College of Law, and an LLM in National Security Law from Georgetown. She's currently the Associate General Counsel at the Central Intelligence Agency, where she advises on a variety of issues, including social media. Prior to her current position during the Obama administration, she was General Counsel to the President's Intelligence Advisory Board and Deputy Legal Advisor to the National Security Council. Dr. Peter Singer, sitting to my right, is a Harvard-educated political scientist, and I think the only political scientist quite possibly in the room today. Welcome, Pete, <laughs> to the ABA. He, uh, he, has, uh, he is a strategist and a senior fellow at New America. He's a leading expert on U.S. national defense, author of multiple award-winning books, including books on child soldiers, on robotics, on the privatized military industry, on cybersecurity, on cyber warfare. Uh, He's written a a novel, Ghost Fleet, about the next world war. And most recently, a couple of weeks ago, his book came out, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. I highly recommend it. It's it's actually available. I'm going to plug it. It's outside. It's, It's really one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's an excellent book. Joining me to my left is Mr. Colin Stretch, who is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Harvard Law School. He served as vice president. He has served as vice president and general counsel of Facebook since July of 2013. 
for three years prior to that, he was in a deputy position, during which time he served as the lead negotiator in the FTC settlement. He came to Facebook from Kellogg, Huber, Hansen, Todd Evans, and Fiegel, right here in Washington, D.C., where he was a partner, having clerked for Justice Stephen Breyer and Judge Lawrence Silberman. Now, Jamil Jaffer, who's listed in the program, unfortunately uh, had a family emergency come up at the last moment, uh, and I wish uh, him and his family well. I'm delighted that Rachel Levinson-Waldman uh, was able to join us here today. She obtained her JD from the University of Chicago and is senior counsel at the Brennan Center Liberty and National Security Program. She has written on law enforcement access to social media, artificial intelligence, predictive policing, license plate readers, foreign intelligence collection and surveillance. She authored the Brennan Center reports on the Trump-Russia investigation, as well as the retention of Americans' data. And she's most recently written the Law Review article, Government Access to and Manipulation of Social Media, Legal and Policy Challenges. Uh, she delves into the First and Fourth Amendment challenges that, that really attend these issues in uh, social media. And like Pete's book, I highly recommend the article as well. So Pete, Colin, Rachel, uh, Nancy, welcome. All right, let's jump right into it here. Colin, I'm going to start with you. We're in the middle of a technological revolution in terms of how people interact. At the first quarter of 2018, Twitter had, sorry, Twitter had more than 336 million monthly active users worldwide, 67 million in the United States. LinkedIn had 20, uh, 260 million globally. WhatsApp now has 1.5 billion global users. By far the biggest game in town is Facebook. Second quarter of 2018, you had 2.23 billion monthly active users worldwide. Uh, this is not a dorm room project anymore. Uh, what is going on here? Uh, so we just released third quarter earnings, and I'm happy to report that the numbers have ticked up slightly from there. But um, uh, no, it, it's a great question because these services, um, uh, Facebook as well as a number of the other services you've mentioned, are you know, relatively ubiquitous in, in the world today, and we'll talk about some of the opportunities and challenges that presents. Um, I think if you think about where this is all coming from, from our perspective at least, um, at Facebook, if you think about the history of technology or the history of consumer-facing technology, much of it is around utility, how to enable you to perform tasks more efficiently. Um, and we have always thought about technology as a means to um, put people um, at the center of their relationships, including their relationship with technology. And what I mean by that is our mission has always been to help people connect and to share what's important to them. And that is something that has become more and more um, easy to accomplish as technology has advanced. And by that I mean in particular the internet, of course, um, but then the use of mobile devices. And now, uh, unlike decades ago, everyone is walking around with a what passed for a supercomputer in their pocket. Um, and using that technology to allow people to share what's important to them and to connect to the people that are important in their lives is a very natural human function. Um, and it's something that we aspire to enable for people around the world. And, you know, we've had some good fortune in, in, in uh, achieving a, a significant amount of uptake for our services. So how does it... How does it actually work in terms of generating content in which people would be interested? What is it that connects people in social media? So, Clay Shirky, um, you know, maybe a decade ago, wrote an article about how the revolution that social media is um, assisting 
involves essentially the disintermediation of institutions that control or provide gateways to speech and to people. And the way he described it was it used to be one-to-many one um, with an institution sitting in between that allowed the amplification of an individual voice. Um, with the use of technology, it's really any-to-any. Any. Um, so any person anywhere can reach really any audience anywhere through the use of these tools. That enables the um, uh, an enormous amount of speech by individuals who can find an audience really anywhere. So we are providing tools. We're not, we don't think of ourselves as developing the content. We think of ourselves as enabling the production and distribution of the content. Okay. So over to Rachel, an enormous amount of speech, you know, that seems to illustrate the values. There we go. Um, yeah, no, I think the, the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, other platforms, really are an incredible venue for the exercise of First Amendment protected speech and activity. And this is something that the Supreme Court has recently recognized. So in a case about a year or two ago um, called Packingham, the court looked at a North Carolina law that would have prohibited um, sex offenders basically from, from being online, from being on social media. And in that case, the court said um, these websites, really the internet, but especially social media sites, um, provide perhaps the most powerful mechanisms available to a private citizen to make his or, voice, his or her voice heard and really recognize the power of these platforms for um, politi political speech, organizing the ability to, to connect with each other, as, as Colin was saying. There's an additional um, kind of fine point that I'd like to put on this, which is that I think it's absolutely the case that they are this forum for speech. Obviously, we know that has also um, enabled um, a lot of kinds of connection that we don't necessarily see as sort of pro-social. Um, but there are also differences in terms of who, potentially who uses the platforms, but particularly who finds them particularly useful. And I'm speaking here not to the kind of manipula manipulation, Russian interference piece of it. Um, Pew did a study just this past summer um, looking at the use of social media sites for political activity and organizing. So thinking of this very core First Amendment activity. Um, and said that particularly among users of color, they find social media sites to be particularly important venues to express political views. So half of all black and Hispanic users said that they are important venues. Only about a third of white users said the same. Um, more black and Hispanic users said that these were venues for getting elected officials to pay attention. And so we see social media sites, and I think this is also to Colin's point, as ways for communities that wouldn't have usually have had or typically had direct access to elected officials or to influencers to really have that access. So that's the any to any point. And it, it, you, you mentioned in Packingham, you know, there's this nice quote, Justice Kennedy, he's talking about social media in this case, and he says that this is our modern public square. He says it allows citizens to explore the vast realms of human thought and knowledge. And I thought, he doesn't have a Twitter account, <laughs> like, <laughs> if that's his view of this. Um, but Pete, I, I want to turn to you next, because actually, you argue in your book that there have been these turning points in how social media is used, that, that actually the design of it isn't exactly how it's being used as a functional uh, point. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So first, uh, thank you. It's a, it's a great opportunity to join you. Um, I'm the son of an Army lawyer, so I'm not intimidated by all of you, and you'll also see what you're, you might create in a future generation. Um, <laughs> so... What the Like War Project is about is the idea that uh, social media has become the nervous system of the modern world. It's reshaped everything from uh, dating 
to business, uh, to politics, and it's allowed this kind of connection that's been spoken about, but it has also become a war zone uh, for everything from marketing wars to real wars and how they actually now mix and cross. And then the second idea of like war is that you might think of it as a type of activity if cyber war is the hacking of networks that we all in this room and in business and in military had to get smarter on over the last generation. Like war is about the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes, lies, and the platform's own algorithms. And what's notable about it is um, across the study of the research that looked at everything from Donald Trump to ISIS to Wendy's to Taylor Swift, you had wildly different actors, but they kept coming back to the very same set of tactics because they had the same goal online but with very different real-world goals. But by achieving their goal online in a world where sort of attention is power, they could achieve their offline goal, which is everything to win an election, um, cause an Iraqi army unit to run away, uh, to get people to buy your latest album. And so that's what the, you know, the, the turn has been in all of this. And it's really been remarkable for, for those of us to, we're living through something that is equivalent to the advent of the telegraph um, or the telephone in terms of allowing one-on-one connection, but I offer a slight tweak. What makes this technology different is it simultaneously allows what radio or the printing press or TV did broadcast. So you get both one-on-one connection and mass broadcast, and that's part of what's been so powerful about it, but also has meant that um, it's a battle space where we all play, whether you are a former military down to you and I, we're targets and we're combatants. And the one last thing to offer in this, I think it's important, because some people in this room might be saying, well, I'm not online, or well, it's only what's online that matters. Um, It affects, again, the real world in terms of votes the like, but also, for example, 97% of journalists use Twitter to do everything from find out what stories to cover, uh, how to cover them, to test market ideas, to who they should book to be on radio shows or on TV. So even if you're not on social media, it's still shaping all the other news media that you might consume. You mentioned it's not just passing on news, though. It's common experience and news mediated by emotional content. So it's kind of socially constructed. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So it's a space where, um, again, it can be, uh, it's powerful in in terms of it allows us to connect. uh, But that comes with a dark side. Um, actually, Facebook, uh, about five years ago, had a, um, it was an ad that the, the more we connect, the better it gets. And now that we've sort of seen a kind of a change in our attitudes of, hold it, is that, does the, the better it gets. And part of that is because um, it's a space that's, it's a battle, it's a marketplace, and it's simultaneously a battle space, but it is owned and operated by for-profit businesses. And it was designed in a way to uh, achieve the goal of for-profit businesses. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the result is it's, again, a marketplace and a battle space that is designed to reward interaction and virality. And so when we're talking about um, disinformation campaigns, whether they are committed by Russia, 
to uh, just two weeks ago, we had all of the same tactics used by the Russian Internet Research Agency used by Lady Gaga fans. So everything from sock puppet accounts, uh, uh, pushing false news stories. In in the Gaga case, they were trying to um, uh, drive down the sales of movies coming out the same weekend as her new movie. They were using all the same tactics that Russia was doing to drive down voter turnout for Hillary Clinton campaign or the like. But the point is, it's a space that doesn't reward veracity. It rewards virality. All right, and you talk about the power of this space. Nancy, can you talk a little bit about the power of the social network and, and how that works out in terms of important nodes and eigenvector centrality and those types of concepts? So uh, thank you, Laura, and thank you to the committee for inviting me to participate on the panel. Uh, but first, a disclaimer. Uh, I am here in my personal capacity, uh, so the views expressed, the statements are my own and not necessarily those of the CIA or the U.S. government. Uh, so... Um, in terms of the, the power structure, it's really interesting to watch the different nodes and how they amplify uh, messages um, and just to see where that goes because uh, all of these connections that we've talked about uh, so far, of course, the more uh, a platform uh, allows folks to connect, uh, the more uh, then that they have the opportunity to influence each other. And in terms of receiving information, whether it was about the election or otherwise, uh, individuals are more likely uh, to believe information that they receive from those trusted sources, whether it's their uh, peers, their friends, their family. And the more often they hear that information, whether uh, including false information, uh, the more uh, they are likely to believe it. So uh, in terms of watching that amplification, it really is uh, something that makes a huge difference. Colin, would you like to add to that at all in terms of the structure so far until we move, before we move forward? I actually want to respond to some of what Pete said, but I think we're going to get to the topic. Um, Why so, don't we move, what, how about, yeah. all right, this is a good time, enter pursued by a bear. Yeah. <laughs> now, now we're talking. So Pete, uh, can you, why, why don't you just lay out for us um, how the Kremlin uses that structure that we discussed previously of social media to accomplish the goals that it has? Sure. So th- there's a, a dark irony for um, all of us in this room, uh, the, the A and the ABA, is that we are the nation that literally invented the Internet, but we are the nation that um, other nations now point to for don't let what happened to them happen to us. Uh, and, you know, if you Swedish defense planners to the like. Um, and uh, we are behind in terms of this uh, like war activity. And a great illustration of that is the comparison between, you know, the success that uh, Russia has met with this. And, and frankly, it's not all that shocking. Uh, they're the nation that literally invented the concept of disinformation um, back in the 1920s and continued to push it forward. So if we're looking at the overall activity, um, essentially there were two prongs to it. Uh, one is what are known as sock puppet accounts. These are real people behind fake accounts. Uh, so I'm a, uh, and they're mostly hubbed in a site in St. Petersburg, but basically, you know, it, you would have a 20-year-old Russian who's posing as everything from a, um, a Texas grandmother to an American military veteran or the like. And we had uh, thousands of, of these accounts. Roughly, uh, if we look at one, for example, three, there was one set that was 3,000. Um, then you have a second category that are known as bots. And bots are basically uh, software. They're machine 
that is spewing out uh, automated messaging. And what's important about it is not just that it might directly trick someone into believing it, but it also turns the platform's own algorithms against the target because it, 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 it shapes trends, what is trending, to it makes certain voices louder online than they would otherwise be. So the Russian activity involved um, both injecting uh, information into the ecosystem. Um, uh, so these are examples. Uh, these are actually from the book. Um, the one on the left um, was an ad that was pushed out. And again, the great thing about this space is mass, but micro-targeting. So that, that one on the left was an ad that went to um, someone on Facebook if you showed a profile that you uh, liked, um, Rand Paul and Sean Hannity and were an evangelical Christian, um, you would get this ad as opposed to uh, someone else um, might get a fundamentally different ad pushed to them. So some of it was ads being pushed, and then others were elevating voices already inside our own politics. So, for example, there was a recent data set of about um, 10 million of these Russian tweets that were put out and we found that what was fascinating about it is, for example, the Pizzagate conspiracy theorist was one of the most, um, uh, of all the people in the world, was the most uh, retweeted, uh, the third most retweeted of the Russian accounts. So you're elevating these different voices. Um, in terms of the scale, just to give you a sense of the impact, uh, these types of ads um, there, uh, Colin can weigh in. I, I believe the last data I saw was 146 million Americans saw them across their Facebook stream in some way, shape, or form. Um, a different micro example of the impact would be uh, the at Tennessee GOP account, which was a um, Russian account posing as if they were a Tennessee Republican. Um, it was the seventh most read account on election day 2016. Not the seventh most read of the 3,000 documented Russian accounts, the seventh most read overall, more than almost every single American politician, media site, you name it. So this is, you know, if, if you don't believe what matter, what plays out online matters, then um, you must not have heard of who the American president is, you must not have heard of who ISIS is, um, you must not have heard of who Taylor Swift is. Nancy, is this really any different than what Russia has, has done? The KGB had 100,000 disinformation campaigns. That's, I think, the actual number uh, during the Cold War. How is this any different from that? So as uh, Peter mentioned, disinformation isn't new. Fake news, false stories, uh, propaganda. Uh, what is different, in my opinion, is the speed and ease, of course, uh, with which uh, people are able to put out uh, that type of information. Uh, the low investment that's required in terms of resources, very cheap, uh, get a computer, uh, get on the internet and, and you're there, um, and the ability to reach people worldwide, I mean any place, uh, so those are some of the differences. Uh, things like the increased use by non-state actors, criminals, terrorists, others, uh, just folks who have an agenda, they want to press, they now have the ability to do that uh, very easily. Uh, another thing that will, uh, or that is uh, changing, is uh, deep fakes. Uh, so manipulated video images uh, that uh, appear to be real. And so going forward, as that uh, increases and in the technology there, it will become harder and more challenging for people, for the public, to know what is really true. So in the past, uh, one would have looked to government and perhaps media or the press to uh, counter uh, those things, to correct or uh, address that type of information. 
And now we, of course, see a role for social media companies and platforms, whether it's having terms of service and user agreements that prohibit uh, certain content or behavior, uh, policing that content, uh, being able to uh, realize what's happening on their platforms to address it, uh, and uh, things like uh, being transparent, uh, informing the public of uh, what's going on. And finally, I'd say uh, sharing information with the government consistent with U.S. law. Uh, thanks. So the, the picture I just put up is a, is a deep fake, so to speak. The, the image on the left is the original image. The one on the right is artificial intelligence applied to that image to create a new image that can be, then be used as a sock puppet online to put out information which the bots can then pick up and transmit uh, throughout the social media world. So this is just one example of how AI can be applied to create uh, a deep fake, a false identity, uh, which can then be, be propagated. Colin, could, could you comment a bit? When did Facebook first become aware of the Russian manipulation? Uh, how have you thought about this in, in the time that has elapsed since then? Thank you. Yes. Um, so what we're, what we're really talking about is a form of abuse of social media. Um, and the reason I use that term is, you know, the way, the way we think about it is when humanity is online, you're going to see a lot of um, the good that humanity brings to endeavors, and you're going to see a lot of the bad as well. Um, I think we've said quite publicly um, that we were slow in recognizing this form of abuse. Uh, we missed it in 2016. I don't think we were alone in that, but we certainly um, were not investing sufficiently to identify and address this particular form of abuse of our services. One of the, one of the uh, uh, just a bit of context though to understand the, the nature of the challenge, and I think you know the deep the deep fakes uh, slide is instructive, but you don't have to use complicated technology to create content that is difficult to pick out. Um, you know, we have we talked about the volume of users we have on our service. It's a it's a very big haystack, and one of the reasons that this particular topic is so challenging is that much of the content, it's not, you know, you're not looking for a needle in a haystack, you're looking for a needle that's disguised as a piece of hay. And the reason I say that is, if you go back a slide, I don't know if we can do that, um, this content that you're looking at is very specific to the election. It's actually pretty unusual um, as compared to most of the content that was shared by the Internet Research Agency over the course of what was really a 19-month campaign. Most of it was around inflaming social issues. So you saw a lot of Black Lives Matter on the one hand. You saw a lot of Blue Lives Matter as well. Um, you saw events try, you know, trying to create different uh, 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 sides of the same issue to convene on a particular street corner at a particular time. It was quite insidious and quite manipulative. The content itself, if you... If you um, put to one side where it was coming from, the content itself is the sort of social commentary that we believe in this country is actually to be applauded. People have passionately held beliefs. They express them offline. They express them online as well. And trying to tease out, oh, this particular effort to discuss this particular uh, controversial social issue um, is actually coming from a, an inauthentic source for the purpose of undermining the stability of the country, it's, it's a little hard to find. Um, 
That's not to say we're not looking for it. Um, we are. And I think one of, the, one of the things we're quite proud of, we still have a lot of work to do, but you know, really in the last year, um, we've invested a significant amount of people and a significant amount of our technological efforts to try to identify really the behavior that helps us separate the wheat from the chaff. And by that I mean if you see the sort of behaviors that Pete was talking about in terms of, 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 of using fake accounts to seed content and then um, sharing it into different groups, there are behaviors there that we can tease out and, and uh, uh, address. Um, we're also much further along in being able to identify uh, what is and what is not a fake account, what is real authentic behavior. Um, we've also made, I think, some real progress on the important point Nancy made around transparency. So when we take down now clusters of accounts that we believe are um, trying to intervene and destabilize the discourse in this country or in others, right? This is a worldwide phenomenon. We're very public about it now. We have a number, we have press calls with a relatively re, uh, regular cadence. We're putting out blog posts regularly to talk about this. We believe that people ought to know exactly what uh, what foreign actors are up to in terms of the discourse in their society. And the last point I'll make is that we've got you know we've got a big piece of the puzzle. We have a lot of users on our service, and we're grateful for that. The the behaviors here are not limited to one particular service. They're not even limited to online activity. There's an online offline component. There's a, a number of different services implicated. I think in your introduction, Laura, you mentioned the the stolen emails from the 2016 election that were then you know. Uh, uh, hosted on a third-party web service, and then they, and then there was the use of online efforts to try to direct, you know, candidly media to that um, uh, to that resource. So it's a pretty big puzzle. And the the important point I'm making is, and, and Nancy re referred to this as well. Like this is something we have to be working on together. And we've been quite pleased with the the dialogue we've seen now with the task force that the FBI has set up. We work with the Department of Homeland Security as well, and then as well in I'm the only one representing industry here, but we have actually really good partnerships with Twitter and with some of the other companies that, um, that, that, that work together to identify threat information and allow us to, uh, to chase this stuff down. And Jack Dorsey, who's uh, Twitter's CEO, so he's commented that Twitter is built and measured by help, how we help encourage more healthy debate and conversation and critical thinking. Conversely, abuse or malicious automation or manipulation detracts from that kind of dialogue, and certainly Mark Zuckerberg has come out. Uh, he, he also mentioned that the AI tools that you deployed ostensibly in the French elections, the German elections, um, that, that these, Alabama's special election in 2017, uh, that these tools were able to proactively take down, and I'm, I'm quoting him here, tens of thousands of fake accounts that may have been trying to influence those elections. So in a world in which attribution can be impossible, um, both in terms of the, the identity of the individual or even the location, how do you know that those tens of thousands of accounts that you took down were actually... Oh, you... oh. Good, to, good, good to, to know I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, 
Yeah, it's a great question. This is a this is a this is a particular challenge that requires scaled responses and that requires individualized investigation. And so we really have to be working this at both end of the ends of the spectrum. The, the the point you're referring to is we get and we have a long history of trying to battle fake accounts, and that is mostly around spam. That is mostly accounts that people are creating with the goal of spamming users to try to get them to buy stuff. Um, and that's something we've been dealing, you know, like every communications tool uh, online, we've been trying to deal with this stuff forever. You never completely get rid of it, but it's, um, it, it's an ongoing challenge. And what we had to do is really adjust our thinking and realize that there were actually similar efforts, fake accounts, not for the purpose of spamming people to get them to buy stuff, but spamming people to get them to, you know, sign on to um, issues, uh, uh, along the lines I, I described earlier. And so what we had to do is just take our, what we call our classifiers, the technology we use to see patterns of behavior that are consistent with the creation of fake accounts and adjust them to address fake accounts created for the purpose of sowing uh, information, uh, misinformation. Um, and in so doing... You know, we believe we made it substantially harder to engage in the sorts of things that Pete was describing. Not impossible. And so when we adjust our defenses, you know, our adversaries adjust their efforts as well. This audience, I'm sure, knows this better than anyone else. And so in light of that, there's still going to be behavior online on Facebook and our services that is problematic, and we have to be able to not only continue to adjust our technology, but also we have to stand up people who spend their days, and these are, you know, former, oftentimes former law enforcement um, professionals, who spend their days... Um, sifting through leads, essentially, and trying to identify and unearth networks of misbehavior. And that's why I say you have to hit it on both ends of the spectrum. There are some scaled solutions, and that's what you're referring to. There's a lot of painstaking work that also goes into identifying and uh, remediating some of this behavior. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. You can find links to Blackletter Law and listen to the full audio of this panel from the 2018 annual conference online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or through the link in the notes to the podcast. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. If you visit us online, you'll see that we have an event coming up on May 1st, Law Day. The Standing Committee will be hosting a luncheon and a panel discussion on supply chain security. Visit us online to find more details and to sign up. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.